Revolution! How are you doing? Woo! Woo! How are you guys doing? Woo! Okay, now that um, school is getting ready to start, uh, we have a few announcements about Shawnee. Um, for those of you that do not know, um, those of you have been away all summer, um, every Tuesday and Friday night, like Tuesday nights um, in the East End at the Rev House on the corner of 7th and Campbell, we are doing a trash pickup. So that just includes us, um, whoever's willing to come out. Um, we'll just go around the East End picking up some trash. Hopefully, um, it will communicate with some people out there um, in the East End. And um, just give them some help and let them know we're out there in the community to help them and just share Jesus with them. And Friday nights, uh, we have to cook out to anybody who's in the East End. Uh, anybody wants some food. <laughs> Um, what are you doing? You know, we go around inviting people. Mm -hmm. just He's controlling the sound, making sure that people can also, hear it. Also, um, in hopes to share Jesus with them as well. And um, David Dowdy, who um, is preaching here, uh, he will be on campus Tuesday evenings and afternoons, I think, right? Like noon to like 11 or noon to 5 or 6. Okay, so 11-ish to around 5 or 6-ish. So he will be on campus um, just spread the word about Jesus. Anybody wants to have a conversation or just um, any questions. So if you guys want anything, anything um, you can ask him. He'll be outside of Massey, I believe, or just anywhere. And also, um, within the next month or so, I think we're going to um, have a showing of God's Not Dead. Uh, if you guys haven't seen that, pretty good movie. Um, and we will also, I think uh, Matt Rawlings and um, possibly Meriwether maybe have a debate um, if they can find someone else to debate with them about the existence of God and just some other cool stuff like that. Bible study. Um, we were doing Bible studies on Monday nights uh, on campus. We haven't found a room yet, but right now we're just going to meet outside of Nazi. Hopefully it won't be raining. Um, around 8 p.m. we're going to have Bible study, and if you guys come tomorrow night, then we'll uh, talk more details about that. Uh, I just want to give you guys a quick update um, on the 2112 80th Street house. So there was a fire, um, technically I guess would have been Monday morning. Uh, I think I posted some, some pictures on the Facebook page for those of you that had seen it. But as, a, as of right now, we're still, the insurance is going to cover it. It was caused, I guess, I believe by the lawnmower being uh, back in the house. Uh, they're going to be gone for a couple months. They put the lawnmower inside because they tend to walk off down there. Um, so they, we had it inside. The pilot light was apparently ignited some of the gas and kind of blew out the window and the door and made a little fire in the window. So the good news is AJ and Allie are okay. Uh, yeah, that's cool. The good news is, is that they were there when it happened because if they weren't there, not have your house, there would be rubble, and that's about it. So uh, the, the Portsmouth Fire Department came in like less than two minutes, put out the fire, broke in the front door so they could feel pretty cool, uh, <laughs> I guess, so they got to pay for it. Um, and then, so everything's cool, the insurance is going to cover, uh, should cover a portion of it, some things we will need help with. Um, unfortunately, none of AJ's and Alice's contents were covered, so uh, that's not real cool. Uh, but it is what it is. So we'll need some help with that, and we'll also need help moving it out. So probably within, possibly this week, but for sure by next week, uh, I'll get a, a truck lined up. We'll need some hands to come down and 
and move their stuff out so they can get to work uh, ripping down all the old nasty black drywall and flooring and all that fun stuff. So just want to give you a quick update on what's going on. I know a couple people have asked. So that's where that's at. Now I'm supposed to give you something really cool to say for 30 seconds. Kelly, you didn't tell me what the 30 second thing was. Uh, yeah. Uh, how many each other on their facial hair or lack of? There you go. <laughs> what? Like, if you're a woman, how do you just say I'm glad you don't have facial hair? We didn't think this one through. So what's up, Revolution? Take that one with you. It's a faithful translation. It's a good one. That's our gift to you. 
Um, or if you have a Bible at home that doesn't seem to make much sense, take that one with you anyway. Um, this is like the third time in James's letter that he's talking about speech. And this is the last bit in a section that James has been addressing conflict and selfishness and stuff within the church. Now, James has told us that our speech is one of the hardest things to submit to Jesus and that we shouldn't speak sinfully against anybody. Um, but he starts to bring it into what it looks like within the church. And this is a constant theme throughout the Bible. That we're not supposed to speak badly of anybody. We're supposed to always speak graciously, speak for the building up of people, never for the harm or the tearing down of anybody. All right, so keeping that in mind, let's check out James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. We're going to see what James has to say. And if you're like me and you struggle with this, with conflict with people, or you struggle with, like, holding your tongue whenever you're fighting with people, these are two verses that are guaranteed to light you up because they lit me up all week. Um, so let's check it out. Let's see what James has to say. Verse 11. Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone, who gave the law, is the judge. He alone has the power to save or destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Right, so that one is, just like I said, like it's something that I really struggle with. I'm just going to come clean, so if I seem at all like I'm pointing the finger at any point, this is straight to me. This is going to beat me up all week. Uh, but this is also a passage that gets used out of context a lot. Right, James is uh, paraphrasing Jesus here where he says, like, judge and you'll be judged also. James is saying here there's only one judge. You're not to judge your neighbor. Um, but people will throw that out of context, like Miley Cyrus, right? Like, only God can judge me. Was that her? I don't know you crazy kids listen to anymore. I've been out of the loop for like five years. I listen to metal. Um, like, only God can judge me. You do that all the time. And that's super true. Right? That should be a terrifying thought. Not an excuse to, yeah, don't tell me I'm wrong, I'm going to go do whatever I want to do. That's not what this is designed for. And that's not what James is getting at here. So we're going to take a deeper look at what James means, or one of a few things that James could have meant. Um, and we're going to see that there's a lot more that James has in mind for us to consider with these verses. So if I go a little bit longer than normal, there's just a lot of ground to cover, so bear with me. Uh, so the first thing, speaking evil. Right? He says, uh, Let's get a direct quote. Uh, don't speak evil against each other. That was easy enough. Um, so speaking evil, what is that? What does that look like? James is a really straight shooter. He usually means what he says. 99% of the time, we know if we've spoken to someone or spoken about someone behind their back in a way that's not God-honoring, if we've done something wrong. And just to clarify, um, speaking evil is speech that tears people down, makes them feel less than you. Um, that puffs yourself up at the expense of somebody else. That is condescending. Making people feel stupid intentionally. Making, feel, making people feel like they are less than you. Um, it's prideful. It's arrogant speech. It's uh, falsely accusing people of things or accusing someone based off of hearsay. Um, slandering someone. Gossiping about people. Right? And that's, a, that's a big one uh, that I've had to really rein in in the last year or so of my life is talking about people behind their backs. Like, guys, we have to say that we don't do that, but let's be real for a second. Like, dudes do that stuff, too. Uh, but, like, gossiping and things like that. And, and a clear-cut definition of, of, of evil speech or speaking evil against people um, is any speech that does not edify, instruct, or, or do any good or come to any good or is spoken without grace and love. All right, that's just a clear-cut definition 
of, of speaking evil. And James condemns this kind of speech towards all people, whether they're Christian or not. Just because you're a Christian and someone else isn't, that doesn't mean that you have a right to all of a sudden uh, condemn or speak so. down to people or make them feel stupid, even if you're disagreeing with that. they've done something to you that you disagree with. And then James says that whenever you criticize other people, that you are criticizing God's law. We're going to get to what that means here in a little bit, but what James is referencing is Jesus' command to love your neighbor. Right? If you're talking badly about people, if you're tearing people down with your speech, you're not exactly loving your neighbor, are you? Alright, so bearing that in mind, this applies to every circumstance, every day, with all people that we ever come in contact with. Right? Like last week I, I talked about uh, submitting to the Lordship of Jesus, that we have to bring every thought, every word, every action that we do or think about doing, we have to bring that in line with Scripture and say, if this is not honoring to Jesus, we don't do it. If this is not something that I should say that's honoring to Jesus, I need to shut up. Right? Things like that. So, we've got the general idea, but James isn't just speaking broadly. Right? He's done that uh, in chapter 3. He's spoken very broadly about our speech. He's done that in chapter 2. Here, I, I, would, I would say, and a lot of people would agree, James is specifically addressing Christians. He says, do not speak evil against each other, brothers and sisters. All right, so he's talking about how the church um, handles conflict as a whole body, right? Not just here, but we're going to talk about the big C church, the worldwide church, the community of all people that place their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. That's what we're going to talk about, Christians and how we treat one another. So bearing that in mind, we have to know that James saw a lot of conflict. All right, he was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Um, People would bring all of their theological debates, all of their like morality debates, all of their authority um, disagreements, stuff like that. They would bring it to Jerusalem because that was like the headquarters for Christianity for a good while. And James would see just all kinds of conflict within the church and have to help you know meet out um, judgment with, with stuff like like what's right, what's wrong, what should we do, what shouldn't we do? And that got me thinking: what kind of stuff would James have seen? Something I found out by reading the Bible and then looking around like, just at the world around us. The things that happen in the Bible generally happen now. Like, just a little bit different. We have cell phones, pretty much. Uh, people are just as wicked, fight over the same stuff. So what are the two things that Christians fight over more than anything? And I came, I came to a couple of conclusions. One, we fight and divide the most over theological disagreements. Like doctrine, like what do you believe? We fight over doctrine. Churches split over doctrine. I've seen it happen just in my short 22 years here. The church divides over doctrine. So let's, what are some theological disagreements? Calvinism and Arminianism. Pick a side, pick your sword up, enter the arena. No? No one else think that's funny? Is this too serious? Am I getting too close to home here? Revolution? Right? Free will of predestination, which is it? Did you choose Jesus or did Jesus choose um, you know, infant baptism, do we baptize babies or do we only baptize believers? Um, is speaking in tongues something that still goes on or did that cease whenever the Bible was finally finished? Uh, what's some other uh, Complementarianism and egalitarianism, which are like $5 words for can women preach and pastor and be elders or is that stuff that women shouldn't be able to do? Um, was there a literal six-day creation? Or is the earth actually billions of years old and there's some kind of God-guided evolution? These are all things that Christians fight over a lot. All right, so there are theological or doctrinal disagreements within the church. And the other thing that we tend to fight about a lot is uh, I, 
I didn't know how else to word it. Personal holiness disagreements. Those usually come in the form of a question I found out. Um, can a Christian drink alcohol? Good times. If you're ever bored, uh, post on Facebook that you don't think it's a sin for a Christian to drink alcohol. Set in for the evening, baby, because you're getting notified all day long. Right? Can a Christian drink alcohol? Can a Christian use tobacco? Right? Is it a sin to say cuss words? Um, can Christians listen to secular music, which was really big whenever I grew up in like a super conservative church? Can you listen to non-Christian music? Uh, can a Christian watch R-rated movies? Right? That's another one. And my personal favorite, what kind of Bible should Christians use? Like King James only? Are we going to go look at the NIV and the ESV, a bunch of sinners? Right? Like that's, that's one of my favorite debates, which might be one of the dumbest ones. But churches church is seriously divided over all this stuff. Right? And there are biblically right answers to all of these questions. And if you want to know what they are, come talk to me at the church. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't have the answers to everything. Um, I think that I have fairly decent scriptural uh, evidence for the things that I do believe, but there are there's a reason why there are debates. It's because there is evidence from both sides most of the time. Uh, but I'm not here to tell you which ones of those things are right, which ones of those things are wrong. But I'm telling you how to approach things this evening. Right? That's the big thing that I'm going to deal with here for a minute. All right, um, and the first one, these theological doctrinal belief disputes. Right? If they don't affect the good news of Jesus, don't fight over them. Don't divide over them. If they don't affect this, that everyone is born a sinner, that we are damned to hell from the moment that we're born because we're sinners, that Jesus is God incarnate, the Father, Son, and Spirit, Right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Jesus comes to earth, is born of a virgin, lives a sinless life, takes our sin on himself, dies as a substitute in our place, suffers the wrath of God, and then comes back from the dead three days later. And through faith in him and him alone are we saved. If it does not affect that, don't fight over it. Sounds like incredibly simple. And it's something that I struggle with, just to be totally honest, because like, I really like to be right on everything. I don't punk. Um, but don't let the, like don't fight over this stuff, right? If, if the, like I said, if they don't affect the gospel, it's not worth dividing over. And literally everything that I mentioned in both of those sections, neither of them, none of those things affect the gospel a little bit at all. And yet we see division in the church over that stuff, right? Like you ever wonder why there's Baptists and free will Baptists? Think about it, right? Some believe in predestination, the other ones don't. Right? Stupid stuff that the church divides over. And with the personal holiness disputes, I'm like, can a Christian drink, stuff like that? If those disputes aren't abundantly clear in Scripture, like not just completely black and white, don't fight over them. Don't divide over them. Don't talk badly about people about them. What I mean by that is some things in Scripture are just completely black and white. Right? Like you're not supposed to have sex outside of the context of marriage, that, um, that marriage is between a man and a woman, that it's a sin to lie, that's abundantly clear, it's a sin to steal, cheat. Be dishonest, things like that, that are just black and white, re repetitive over and over. If it's not like that, if there's any gray to it at all, then it's not worth fighting over. But some things are worth fighting over. Right, here at Revolution, there's this philosophy that we've been running with for about five years of open-handed and closed-handed beliefs. Right, closed-handed beliefs. This is a revolutionary concept. This uh, I did pun. I didn't mean to. That was a good time. <laughs> we didn't think of this. We stole this from someone. I don't know who. Um, closed-handed beliefs. All right, you close your hand, it turns into a fist. We'll fight over these. 
not physically, but we will argue to death. All right? Uh, and these things are things that affect the gospel directly, like Christ's divinity, the Trinity, um, Jesus being sinless, Jesus dying as a substitute, Jesus coming back from the dead, Jesus having a physical body here on earth during his ministry, things like that that directly affect the gospel. These things, if you mess with them, you no longer have Christianity. But on the other hand, we have open-handed things. They can come and go. You might change your mind on these things. There's wiggle room. There's rooms on both. There's room on both sides for debate. Those things are not worth fighting over. Those things come and go. So I'll tell you this: with all that in mind, take a stance on everything, because be for certain that the Bible takes a stance on everything. You might be wrong. You might be right. Take a stance. Have scriptural support for whatever side that you take on any doctrinal thing, on any holiness dispute. Make sure that you have biblical support because your opinion doesn't matter. Because your opinion 99% of the time is simple, and so is mine. Amen. Thank you very much. <laughs> but if it doesn't affect the good news of Jesus, then don't fight. Stay united. That's what Jesus prayed for. In John 17, he says, I am praying not only for the, these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. So unity is what Jesus desires. Furthermore, Paul reiterates this kind of thinking. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, he says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Ephesians 4, 2, and 3. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. There's more than that. Like there's like I could have bored you guys to death and just kept straight reading the whole time. Like there's just so much. Be united. If it doesn't affect the gospel, it's not that big of a deal. It's important to be right. It's important to come down on the biblically correct side of it, but it's not worth dividing over. But more often than not, we don't leave any room for grace. And we don't leave, leave any room for gray areas either. What I mean by gray, a lot of people don't like that idea that there's gray in the Bible. Everything's got to be black and white. I'm telling you this, history nerds, load in here for a minute. Here we go. All right? Um, we used to have this thing called apostolic succession. Right? Big word. And all it means is this. One of the apostles, like Paul, would teach someone like Timothy. Timothy would teach another guy, another guy, another guy. And they could all trace it back to one of the apostles. Right? We don't have that anymore. That got jacked around with the Roman government and a bunch of other crap, which we won't get into because I'm not teaching a history class. But that got jacked up. So now there is gray. Right? And even before that, there were still arguments over doctrine and stuff, even within the church. But we don't have any kind of apostolic authority that we can appeal to, so now there is gray area in the Bible. We, we, can't, we can't know 100% for certain if certain doctrines are right or certain morality arguments, which side they come down on. And where there's gray, there needs to be grace. We need to be humble enough to say, I might not be right on this stuff. And I struggle with that a lot. That's just me. Like I said, I'm not prideful. I'm arrogant a lot of the times. It's something that I've gotten better at. Thank you, Jesus. But it's something that I struggle with. But instead of having grace where there's a little bit of a gray area, 
We are constantly at one another's throats. Not just within the, this body, but outside of the church as well. Inner church, like this church versus the church down the street. There's a lot of versus mentality. And we bicker publicly on Facebook. Right? There's nothing more pathetic than seeing a Protestant Christian that believes Jesus died in their place for their sin and trust that, fighting with a Roman Catholic Christian that believes Jesus Christ died in their place for their sin and puts their faith in that, and they're bickering over doctrinal points. And I don't mean like a friendly debate or like poking any fun, I mean like a straight up, you're stupid, I don't think you're a Christian, like lighting each other up on Facebook. I used to be guilty of that stuff. Like, not so much with Roman Catholics, but I, I was incredibly guilty of fighting with people on Facebook over, like, Calvinism and stuff like that. Like, that was a big thing for me. I would argue to death. So we, we bicker publicly on Facebook, which makes us look uh, not united. I don't know what the other word for that is. Lost it right now. It makes us look like we're not united. That's what Jesus wanted us to do. And in light of these kind of bickering, it eventually leads to divisions within the church. Did you know that there are over 41,000 Protestant denominations in the world? It's not churches, that's denominations. Not to mention churches that split and keep their denomination tied up. Over 41,000. That's pathetic. That we let things that don't affect our salvation at all divide us. It's absolutely pathetic. And then in addition to that, we slam each other. All the time, not only publicly, but to new believers, to non-believers. No, don't go to that church. Why? I think you've got to wear a dress. It's stupid. Right? And no matter how true I might think that that might be, if that church, church preaches the gospel that Jesus died as a substitute in our place, I have no business telling someone not to go there. Whenever we slam other churches, be very careful about that because if there are people in that church that believe the gospel, you are talking badly about Jesus' bride. I can't imagine Jesus thinks very kindly about us slamming his wife that he died for. And like I said, I'm the chief of sinners on this, and I'm publicly confessing to you guys that I'm more guilty of this than 99% of people in this room. So if you ever see me do this, you ever hear me say anything at someone's house or whatever, call me on it. I mean that too. Call me on it because I am the worst person in this room about this kind of stuff because I like to be right all the time. So we speak badly about these people in these churches and we divide over stupid stuff and instead of showing grace and trying to unite with them, we divide and tear each other down, discourage people from going to that church, whatever. And we begin to judge each other. We begin to judge one another. Now judging this isn't the 2014, don't tell me I'm wrong, only God can judge me, like I said, the Miley Cyrus thing. It's not that kind of garbage. This judging is declaring someone to be condemned by God for selfish reasons. This kind of judgment is declaring someone to not be a Christian because of your disagreements. That this person claims to have faith in Jesus Christ alone because they disagree on your view of predestination, you don't think they're a Christian anymore. Or because they disagree with your views on alcohol and you think that they're not a Christian anymore. You have no grace. That's what the kind of judgment he's talking about. And this kind of judgment is a manifestation of pride. Arrogance. I have to be right. 
Right? And this kind of judgment doesn't just come in between churches. This kind of judgment comes within the church. Like, he hurt me really badly, and a Christian wouldn't hurt another Christian like that. Therefore, he's not a Christian. Right? That happens all the time. I don't think so-and-so is a Christian because they did this. They disagree with me, so I don't think they're a Christian. And what you're saying whenever you say that is to disagree with me is to disagree with God, regardless of whether or not you place your faith in Jesus. Like I said, I hope that no one feels like that I'm, I'm pointing the finger here. I am, I am pointing it right back at myself. But James says that this kind of judgment, he says in a few verses earlier, this kind of judgment needs replaced with godly wisdom that seeks peace and seeks reconciliation and is teachable and is humble. That's the polar opposite of what this is. It's not wrapped in grace at all. So that's the kind of judging. If anyone ever tries to flip that on you and tell you that don't judge me, don't tell me I'm wrong, that's not that's not ninety nah, that's not most of the time what we're doing. But James, I want to make this clear too. Like I said, this is one of the reasons why this sermon's running a little bit longer than normal. I gotta I gotta clarify. Uh, in telling us not to judge one another, James is not condemning maintaining standards of purity within the church. That's not what James is doing. He's not saying to let all sin go by and act like nothing happens because we can't judge people. We can't tell people you know, what a Christian does or doesn't do. That's not the thing. Uh, Galatians 6.1 tells us to point out people's sin graciously and out of love. Right? Paul tells us that in Galatians that we have a duty to point out sin in one another's lives. As long as we're doing it out of love and with grace so that they would want to repent. We also have a duty to excommunicate someone if they stay unrepentant. If you dress in grace and in love, hey, brother, I see that you're struggling with sleeping with your girlfriend. You know, I know that you're banging your girlfriend. That is not okay for a Christian to do. You need to stop that. Nah, I'm going to keep doing it. Bring someone else. Nah, I'm going to keep doing it. Bring them to the elders. Nah, I'm going to keep doing it. There is church discipline that happens. That's not judgmental. That's for the purity of the church. And hopefully that through excommunication, that person will come back to the faith. The conviction would weigh down on them. That's not judging. I just want to make that really, really clear. Pointing out sin in people's lives and church discipline is not judgment on anybody. If that's the case, then Jesus judged because Jesus instituted church discipline. Paul judged because Paul tells us the exact same thing. And all of the letters in the New Testament would be nothing but judgment because all of these letters are telling Christians, this is where you're messing up, and this is what you need to do to fix it. There's a difference, and here's the difference in judging and pointing out sin out of love. Pointing out sin from love comes from a desire to be reconciled with someone, for a desire for them to follow Jesus closer. Judging, on the other hand, is critical in the sense that it's done in anger and spite and arrogance, where your only goal is to hurt that person and not to help them. That's the difference. So not all pointing out of sin is judging. I just wanted to make that really clear. But more often than not, we aren't criticizing other churches or people out of love. We're criticizing other people in churches because we're jerks. Because, like I said, we want to be right. We're being closed-minded. We're being prideful. And that's what James says that we are not supposed to do. And why does he tell us that? If you kick it back to verse uh, 11, uh, obviously it was only two verses. If you kick it back to, to what we read, James says that to criticize one another is to criticize God's law. 
to sit in judgment on other people is to sit on judgment of God's law. So what does that mean? It means that whenever we ignore this command to love our neighbor, right, that Jesus instituted, that's in Leviticus, that James has alluded to three or four times in this letter, that whenever we ignore that command, we are picking and choosing which of God's commands to obey. And that is blasphemy. In doing that, in picking and choosing what to obey and what not to obey, you are saying, I am going to choose which of God's commands are important, which is playing the role of God. That is usurping God's authority over your life. He's to be obeyed fully because he's the one who gets to make the commands. He's the one who gets to decide what we are to do and what we're not to do. So when we speak sinfully, we're not just tearing someone down. Like I said, we're usurping God's role as ruler of our entire lives. As not only the Savior of our lives, but as the Lord of our lives. And that was the first sin. Satan tried to take God's throne. Adam and Eve tried to call the shots in their own life. They tried to take God's role in their lives. So we are, in effect, denying the authority of God over us whenever we talk badly about people or whenever we condemn someone that's not a Christian or whenever we gossip about people or slander people or make people feel insignificant with our speech. We are trying to take God's place. So no matter what our official stance is on God's word or God's law, we prove that we really don't care. It's exactly what we do. And that's a problem because the reality of our faith is tested by the consistency of our obedience. That's a huge problem. So gossiping and slandering each other, being backbiting, being judging and condemning is in stark opposition to following Jesus. So in our in our hurt pride or in our pain or in our whatever, we lash out against people. We show them no grace and we show them no love and we're condemning. But then we turn around and we claim faith in the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Super, super inconsistent. And Jesus wants consistency from his people. So we hurt people and then we claim faith. But that's not what Jesus did for us. The Bible teaches that whenever every breath we took was blasphemy against Jesus and every action that we took was a direct offense to Jesus, that instead of judging us and condemning us like he has the authority and the right to do, that he looked down in grace and love and sought to work our forgiveness for us in spite of how awful that we are. If you've not listened, if I bored you, if, if you've not listened to a word I've had to say, listen to me now. This is the most important thing that I've said. This is the most important thing you will ever hear, ever. Jesus looked down on us and he saw in our sin that we are sinners, that we have all rebelled against God. Sin isn't just a mistake, but sin is trying to take God's authority. It's trying to take God's role as king of the universe, and that is treason. The penalty for treason is always death. But since you've sinned against the holy, eternal, pure, loving God, you deserve eternal death because there is no crime greater than sin. Now, eternal death is hell. A very literal, eternal hell separated from God than anything good. That's justice. 
God is justice. And he says, whenever you sin, someone must pay for what you've done. Justice must be served on someone. But in mercy and grace and love that we often don't show one another, Jesus showed it to us by coming to earth, living a sinless life, never tearing anyone down. Even the Pharisees that opposed him, he still tried to teach them. He prayed for his murderers, never spoke an ill word against anybody. He spoke truth. He spoke in love. He saw people come to repentance in him, but he never sinned. And after living a sinless life and not deserving death, and definitely not deserving to suffer God's wrath for anything, he takes our sin on himself. Everything that we've ever done wrong or ever will do wrong, Jesus takes on himself and he goes to the cross. And on the cross he says, God, your justice demands that someone pay for what these people have done, and I am here to pay it. And God accepts. And Jesus goes to the cross, and he suffers hell on the cross. He suffers the wrath of God for sins that you and I committed. He was an innocent man that died for guilty men. And then after dying, God, wrote, God raised Jesus from the dead to prove that Jesus was innocent and to prove that he accepted this sacrifice as a substitution for us. That sin had been paid for and that if we would place our faith in Jesus, that if we would place our trust in Jesus, we would be loyal to Jesus until the day that we die. We will owe God nothing for what we've done because Jesus has already paid it and to make him pay for it and then make us pay for it is unjust. So now there's a response to this. There's always a response to this. You can accept that message. You can believe that message. You can place your faith in Jesus. Begin to follow Him. Turn from how you've been living and turn towards a life that's pleasing to Jesus because you love Him for what He's done for you. But you can reject this message. And no response is a rejection. If you accept this message, wherever you die, Jesus stands in between you and God. And before God can judge you, Jesus says, remember that I paid for what she did. That I remember, remember that I paid for what he did. They owe you nothing because I died in their place. And then God looks at us and he sees Jesus and we're innocent. If you don't place your faith in Jesus, you stand before God with no mediator, no one in between you and God. And you pay for what you've done. Make no mistake. Someone will pay for the sins that you commit. Either Jesus paid for it on the cross when you put your faith in him, or you will pay for it when you die. There is no third option. So if you guys want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, if you want, to, you want someone to pray with you or explain this message even further, come talk to me after the service. Me and Brady are going to be over here by the house during the worship scene. And if, if that's too embarrassing for you to come talk to us then because there's people around and Come find me or Brady or anyone that's going to be up on the stage or has been on the stage just walking around. We hang out here for a good while after church is over. Just come talk to us. But I implore you, believe that message and put your faith in Jesus. There is no hope outside of that. There is none. Jesus loves you more than you could ever fathom. My favorite quote is, you're more wicked than you ever dreamed and you're more loved by Jesus than you ever did ever we're Christians. We're a family. The moment that you 
put your faith in Jesus, you join this brotherhood and sisterhood with big brother Jesus and Father God through faith in Jesus. The moment you believe, it's time that we act like it. That we act like a family. That we unite like a family. You know with this ISIS stuff going on in the Middle East and Christians being persecuted in Korea. We still want to divide over petty, stupid doctrinal issues? I saw a picture online of a, of a man, uh, his decapitated body. And as I was studying for this, I was, I was reading an article about that. And all I could think was him being a Middle Eastern Christian. He was probably a, a whole other denomination of Eastern Orthodox. I guarantee you, I would have disagreed with this man on almost every single doctrinal point you presented either of us. But he placed his faith in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone for his salvation. And he was willing to die for that. That's my brother. That's your brother. It's not worth dividing them. We're supposed to be united. That's what Jesus wanted us to do. And if there are, aside from theological stuff, if people have hurt you personally within this church or anywhere, especially if they're a Christian, be reconciled with them. Never forget that Jesus prayed for the people who were killing him. That while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. That in the middle of our rebellion, Jesus died for us. How could we withhold forgiveness or reconciliation from anybody? If that's our model and that's our master, it doesn't make any sense. We've been shown grace. How could we not show the same kind of forgiveness to each other? How could we not want to unite whenever that's one of the last things Jesus prayed before he was crucified, that we be one? It's a fitness space for us to divide over stupid things. And remember this who are we to condemn and criticize? There's one judge and it's Jesus. There's Jesus and everyone else. You can't claim the love of Jesus and withhold love from other people. It doesn't make any sense. That's something a Christian can't do. I'll leave you guys with this. One nobodies. Jesus is the only person who matters. And Jesus says that the world will know that we are His because of our love for one another. Let's pray. Father, thank You first and foremost for Jesus dying in our place for us. And without that, there is no hope. Without that, there is no forgiveness. Without that, we are all damned. I thank You for loving us and, and giving us just this perfect perfect model in Jesus for how we're supposed to talk to people, for how we're supposed to, to deal with conflict, for how we're supposed to love each other. God, I, I pray that, that the, the words of James weigh on us, that we don't judge, that we seek to be united, even if we have disputes among other churches, that we wouldn't dog or slam any other Christians just because they believe differently than us, or, or just because we have disagreements on anything, that we would be reconciled with each other, even though someone may have hurt us personally or said something to us that hurt our pride, but that we would seek to love them the same way that you loved us. Let that weigh on us, God. Let us be reconciled. God, be with our brothers and sisters throughout the world that are being killed all day for your name. 
Father, help us to be united and not be divided by stupid, petty things because we all believe that it's only through faith in your Son we're saved. Father, I pray that you give us a spirit of unity and help us to go out and do good in the community and do good.